From the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, this is The Yarn. I'm Clancy Balin. Today we continue our series Mental in collaboration with the Science Gallery, an exhibition that explores the stigmas and biases around mental health. Together with All the Best Radio, our journalists used this prompt to dive deeper into our own heads and explore some of the mysteries of our minds. Last week, we looked at the new you. This episode, we turn to brain baggage, the neurological nuances that define us, separate us, and sometimes bring us together. We're looking at neurodivergence with all the power and pain that comes with it. But first, we look at a sensory phenomenon that has given birth to a whole genre of YouTube videos, the autonomous sensory meridian response. The story is by Zoe Stinson. How does this make you feel? Do you feel relaxed? You might be experiencing ASMR. I am. I used to have a secret, or so I thought. A secret emotion that only I could feel. It was calm, peace and euphoria all at once. One day I got the courage to ask my brother if he got it too. He said no. I asked a friend in school. No. I named it. I called it my soporific feeling. I didn't talk about it. Then one day I was listening to the news. A new study into ASMR. What's ASMR? I thought. Hey. I get that. Certain sounds like whispering, slowly gift wrapping or slowly folding clothes, haircuts, makeup, anything done with care gives me ASMR. It feels like a warm wave washing over my body, starting at my head and working its way down my neck and my spine. But I'm not the only one. It feels like prickles on my spine like massaging in my ears, if that makes sense. It feels more like a release. It's like a tingling from the bottom of my spine, like down my neck, and it's just like a wave of relaxation. It just feels really nice. And I just feel really calm when it happens. I get goosebumps at the back of my neck, and I feel like someone's almost um, patting my back, almost like it's like a really nice, like nice feeling. I don't just feel it in my like neck and whatnot. I feel it like all throughout my body. For me, I think it's more whispering and like close personal attention, I think I relate to. I get ASMR when I like popping bubble wrap mouth sounds. Um, the like ear cleaning, the scratchy ones that are like really like inside your ear, whispering and like certain trigger words like um, trigger or sleep. Yeah, it's hard to explain the sensation. It, like my, some of my friends don't get it and it's like, oh, I get this tingly feeling when people whisper to me, like it comes across maybe like sexual or something, which is totally not. The study I heard about was done by Dr Julia Poerio, psychology lecturer at the University of Essex. Well, cat's out of the bag, I thought when I heard it. Maybe I'm not so weird after all. So, I mean, our study was really kind of a... It was motivated by this idea that... If you don't experience ASMR, it can be 
it's really hard to believe that it's a true thing. And so really the motivation for the study was, you know, what would it take to convince somebody who doesn't experience ASMR that we're not all just kind of making it up? And what we found is that people who experience ASMR show significant reductions in heart rate when they watch ASMR videos compared to um, our control participants, so the people that don't experience ASMR. Um, and so this is kind of the first time, I guess, that we've got more what you might call objective evidence that ASMR is something that is relaxing and that has a different kind of physiological signature for people that experience it. So it's not just people telling us, you know, oh, I find ASMR kind of relaxing and it gives me you know I feel like this actually their body is telling us the same kind of story as well the feeling of ASMR is almost like touch you can get a tactile response um, without any touch happening you're basically simulating touch with no touch happening and we know that touch is really important for things like you know feelings of connectedness um, and intimacy and, and things like that I think that for those people who just think it's a common experience, they probably don't get the guilt and the shame and, and they don't, they've never thought about it as something unusual. But I think with people who think that it's just them, there's a sense in which it's somehow a secret. And if something's secretive, there's quite often a lot of guilt and shame associated with it. For a while, I felt relieved when my secret was revealed but it didn't last. ASMR is weird and confusing and inexplicable. They don't yet know why some people get it and some don't. And a part of me is nervous about what they'll find, that admitting ASMR will mean I'm somehow defective in another way. But at least for now, when it all gets too much, I can just listen to someone crinkling a bit of paper or tapping on something. And I feel so relaxed, so calm and so warm. Maybe it's not a secret. Maybe it's a superpower. That story was by Zoe Stinson. In our next story, reporter Jesse Toland gets diagnosed with epilepsy and finds that one of Russia's greatest writers is a surprising source of support. This story explores a lesser-known side of Dostoevsky. At about nine o'clock in the morning at the end of November, during a thaw, the Warsaw train was approaching Petersburg at full speed. Two passengers had found themselves sitting opposite each other by the window of one of the third-class compartments, both of them young men, both travelling light. With these lines, Fyodor Dostoevsky opens his novel The Idiot and introduces the two main characters, naive, good-hearted Prince Mishkin and feisty, lustful Parfion Rogojin. The Idiot is perhaps the most personal of Dostoevsky's novels. It depicts a mental condition which he struggled with all his life. The novel resonates with me because I also have an epilepsy diagnosis, though I've been seizure-free for a number of years. I remember one time, very embarrassingly, when I was on a plane bound for Vanuatu. I was about 17 and we were heading off for a holiday with family and friends. And I woke up slightly dazed to be told that I'd just had a seizure. I was lying on the floor of the plane, just in front of the cabinets where the food is stored. During his epileptic fits, or rather immediately preceding them, 
he had always experienced a moment or two when his whole heart and mind and body seemed to wake up to vigour and light. For the rest, he saw only too clearly that the result of these ecstatic moments was stupefaction, mental darkness, idiocy. That passage describes Prince Mishkin's epileptic aura, moments of altered consciousness in the lead-up to a seizure. I spoke with a couple of experts in Dostoevsky's studies about the meaning of the aura and what Dostoevsky himself experienced of epileptic auras. With the vision of harmony and light on one extreme and the vision of absolute darkness, pain on the other. Professor of Russian Studies, William Todd. Dostoevsky did write at various times that he thought his gift was to see the extremes of human existence. Prince Mishkin's epilepsy does give him these, these sort of ranges of understanding that the other characters do not have. But by the same token, they present him to the other characters as someone who may be mentally weak. The idea of the novel, my old and beloved, but nevertheless difficult idea, is one which for a long time I dared not tackle. The main thought of the novel is to portray a positively beautiful person. In these words from a letter written by Dostoevsky to his niece, he discusses his vision for the character of Prince Mishkin. But when the novel finally came to be written, it seems he either changed his mind somewhat or was so much under duress writing to deadline that he didn't get to fulfill his vision. Dr. Rowan Williams is another Dostoevsky scholar who provided a perspective on Prince Mishkin. I think initially he imagines Mishkin a sort of saintly one-man resistance movement to the common sense of a corrupt society. And then just thinking, thinking him through or imagining him more systematically as he writes the novel, he seems to become more aware of, of that fragility, which in a way is his own fragility, the fragility of a, a person with a serious medical condition. And um, more and more, Mishkin comes to represent what well, I've sometimes said, almost a, a deliberately failed hero or a deliberately failed saint. Speaking with Dr. Williams, I was struck by the thought the idiot is perhaps something like a 19th century Russian version of Forrest Gump. Dostoevsky was aware of the tragic elements to mental impairment, and it makes sense that Mishkin's life was not all sunshine and rainbows. But Mishkin carries on loving and living and doesn't really resent his disease, which is timeless inspiration for sufferers of epilepsy anywhere. Reporting there by Jesse Turland. You're listening to The Yarn. My name's Clancy Balin, and today we're looking at the mental baggage we carry with us. Have you ever wondered how someone could find heavy metal music relaxing? For our next story, reporter Anthea Vandenberg investigates how the therapeutic benefits of music transcend genre, age, and time. Neuroscientists have been asking for decades how music interacts with the brain and our mental health. Is happiness as simple as putting on Queen? Awesome Bach? 
music doesn't actually directly and mechanically affect your brain. Like you can't play the right kind of music to have an impact on the brain. Professor Katrina Skews-McFerrin is a registered Australian music therapist and the head of research in the Creative Art Therapies degree at Melbourne University. From studies in music therapy, it's been found that our relationships with music and our mental health are far more complex and individual. The music psychology studies show that the music of your adolescence is the music which will most likely stay with you as powerful for your entire life. So watch out what you connect to. You'll be listening to it forever. (laughs) I'm still listening to Madonna. It turns out that even something like metal music can be good for someone. Hi, my name's Andres Brandon and uh, I'm a heavy metal fan. It was pretty slow and progressive. I started playing guitar and bass in high school. Ever since that, I kind of slowly built my way into more like ACDC and that classic rock. And it was just kind of like a gateway drug to the metal scene. I, I love listening to these songs, especially coming from a guitar standpoint. The guys are playing these like really like complex riffs on the guitar and it's, I've, I've been trying to learn them and it's insanely hard, but once you kind of get it, you get this feeling that you're like up on a stage and you've got this crowd that's literally like tearing itself apart in front of you and you are just chugging away at this guitar playing this insane riff. It's like, do you ever like picture like those 80s rock bands with, you know, like Kiss and stuff like that and they're getting up on stage and like tongues out and stuff like that. But I don't know why, there's just so much energy and so much, it's just fun really. So it's about everybody has individual relationships with music. And so you can turn, country music can be, you know, depressing or it can be fun and, and dance music can be uplifting or it can be calming because of that constant steady pacing. But where some music mental health relationships are more straightforward, others can be more difficult. When I first met my friend Mary, she was the lead singer of an up-and-coming electro-pop band called Polar Heart. I actually went and listened to some of your Polar Heart music again. Oh, amazing. There are some bangers. <laughs> you know, I can now reflect back on that music and really enjoy listening to it. For a long time, I couldn't listen to it without feeling sadness that I wasn't on that path anymore. But now I can listen to it and feel really happy about that music. So I started playing the violin when I was about four and I started playing because just like any little sister, I wanted to do everything that my big sister did. I remember for Christmas, I got a violin in my Santa sack. But songwriting and music took on a different tone after Mary was bullied at school. I'd been writing songs really since year six. And I don't know, I was having a tough time at school and I was kind of the oddball out and I thought, you know what, if I was a pop star, nobody would tease me. I didn't apply for university and I said, well, I'm going to move to Sydney and I'm going to pursue my songwriting. You know, I really discovered that the music industry can be a really tough place. I decided after a while that the music industry was no longer for me because it wasn't the music I wanted to create in the end. It was the music the label wanted. 
And so I had a very difficult and stressful relationship with music for a long time. And I actually didn't even listen to music for probably about two years. I found it too difficult to even listen to music. But then I started to get back into my classical violin playing and I got back into violin teaching and I started writing again. And now that I've come full circle and there is absolutely no imperative for me to make music other than I feel like doing it. So who's to say that one type of music is better than another? It gets me ready in the morning when I'm in the shower. I get out and I'm just already like headbanging out of the shower, brushing my teeth. Music is an amazing force and so many people have powerful relationships with music. And who's to say that one song will make it all better? When I did it as a young child, I imagine I did it because I loved it. So I've had this very complicated relationship with music, which has really evolved. That was Anthea Vandenberg. What if you lost the ability to communicate your thoughts and desires? For our final story today, Sophie Beryl brings us a story about aphasia, a neurological disorder that occurs when people can no longer communicate the thoughts in their head after brain damage. Do you know the frustration when a word is on the tip of your tongue, but it's just not coming to you? Um, you know... Eventually, you might find it. It's a passing phenomenon for most, but some people live with a similar feeling whenever they talk. That's called aphasia. Aphasia is a condition that occurs in around one in three first-ever stroke survivors and in other types of brain damage. It leaves people with their intelligence, but robs parts of language. Before the stroke, I um, talked with... um Normal. Uh, aphasia it sounds different. So it affects how you speak? Yeah. Does it affect how you understand as well? No, no. You understand yes, like yes. you did before? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the voice you hear belongs to Jane Ranieri. At age 50 in 2013, Jane had a stroke. Three months later, she was diagnosed with Broca's aphasia. This is just one type of aphasia affecting expression. People with it often have trouble locating and saying the words they want to say. Jane says it can be embarrassing. I've um, out um, a big group, um, uh, out with somebody, but uh, and uh, no, um, don't know the people. Uh, keep my mouth closed. Right. <laughs> Aphasia is different for all. It can affect reading, writing, comprehending speech, or producing it. This depends on the damage to the brain's language centre. Some people, like Jane, understand speech at speed and can read, but not dense books. Some talk fluently, but make little sense. Hands on hold for people's, for us, other hands. I don't know what you get, but I talk One person in Jane's Broca's aphasia group can say just 10 words, but he articulates those 10 words more clearly and perfectly than anyone. And because other parts of the brain process music and rhythm, he can sing the Rod Stewart song Maggie May right through. At the beginning of recovery, Jane could only say one word, her son Sam's name. Speaking with Jane and her daughter Rose now, nearly seven years after Jane's stroke, she can say so much more. But she had to start from scratch. When mum's stroke happened, mum was completely mute. Mum had to learn all the sounds again, remember? Mm -hmm. One sound at a time and then putting words together and then sounding them out and your tongue, where your tongue goes. 
I think people take it for granted, mm. don't they, Mum? Mm-hmm. What can people do to make you feel more comfortable speaking? Um, oh, uh, I've, I want to say something. Um, no one else should talk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And people aren't very good at that. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are there any times perhaps where you've been ignored from a conversation? Yes. Yeah. I think people naturally talk to dad because they don't know how to communicate with mum. But it's not hard for us because we do it every day. But mm. I think it's natural for people to do that, mum. But it's not nice. Mm. Yeah, but I think you were saying to me that we'll be all chatting at dinner and stuff and mum will think of what to say. But we've already had that conversation. Yes. Yeah. So we're onto something else. And then it'll be mum trying to think of what to say for the current conversation. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just a delay. Mm. Yeah. Jane won't make a full recovery, as some others do. If she has to call someone or go somewhere that requires lots of talking, her family will assist. Other than that, Jane still does the things she enjoys. She bowls, gardens, dances, drives, shops and travels overseas with her partner, Robert. Can you think of any particular moments where your mum has made you proud? Yeah, all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Hmm... I'm getting sad. <laughs> yeah, all the time. Yeah, I know it takes a lot of um, courage for mum to do some things. So when you do them, yeah. You haven't done something like this. And it's something that you're anxious about, about speech. Mm. But we knew you could do it. Mm. When mum says something that's very mum to say that's funny and she says it and laughs about it, they're the best moments. <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson once said, it's okay to make people wait to hear what you have to say because what you have to say is important. He doesn't have aphasia, but he stuttered and was mute as a child. It's no surprise that those who have lost their voice know its power best. It's How long was that recording for? 44 minutes. Oh my God, I didn't even realise. 44 minutes? Yes. <laughs> mm. You talked for 44 no, minutes. No. Mum... Oh, my God. That story was by Sophie Beryl. You've been listening to part two of Mental. Next week, we head inside to face our own fears and phobias. This episode has been produced in collaboration with the Science Gallery Melbourne and All the Best. Don't forget to head down to the brand new space in Parkville, The mental exhibition is going to be running until June and it's free. A massive thank you to our producers, Zoe Stinson, Jesse Turland, Anthea Vandenberg, Sophie Beryl, and of course, thank you to our executive producer, Louisa Lim. The yarns produced at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. If you like the show and you want to support us, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. See you next week.